One of the things my father knew quite well was that if you wanted anything to last, you had to make sure that it was built on a proper foundation. And that is true and critical for anything that you ultimately build. Uh, the more secure the foundation, the greater structure you can build. The greater its integrity, we understand the longer the structure will ultimately last. Well, here in chapter 5, we see a building program take place, not one of a physical brick-and-mortar building, but rather of a kingdom, the kingdom of David. And David now, for the very first time in our story of, of 2 Samuel, finally comes to the throne. He's not only now going to reign over Judah, but he's going to reign all, over all of Israel at this particular point. He actually comes to the throne when he's 30 years old. He leaves when he's, 40, when he's 70, which means he reigned for 40 years, which marks one of the longest and one of the most stable reigns in Israel's history. One of the things we have to understand when we're looking and studying chapter 5 of 2 Samuel is to understand that the author, when he put this and wrote this um, chapter, that he wasn't trying to write in chronological order. In other words, his whole point was not to say, well, first this happened, then that happened, and then at the very end, this is how the story ends up. He, he didn't write that way. Uh, oftentimes, biblical authors do not because they're trying to teach us something. And so instead, what he does is he actually takes a series of different events that actually took place throughout David's life, and he puts them together strategically to show us the very foundation on which David built his kingdom. And in doing so, it gives us a glimpse of how God builds his kingdom, the very foundation that God builds his kingdom. Look, we know that Jesus said that I will build my church. He could have very easily have said, I will build my kingdom. Because that's what it is. And we understand that his kingdom was, was going to spread far and wide. And we know that it would be an everlasting uh, kingdom. Which tells us that what he built upon, the very foundation that he built upon was solid. It, it had integrity. It was secure. And so what we want to do this morning is we just want to look at three elements upon which the kingdom of God is built. Three elements in which the kingdom of God is built. Number one, God's kingdom is founded on promises. God's kingdom is founded on promises. Notice, if you will, in verse 1, the Bible says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. Uh, you might be familiar with the, the statement, hindsight is twenty twenty, uh, simply meaning that oftentimes we look to our past and we look at the events that, that we've experienced and gone through, and all of a sudden we have greater clarity than when we were experiencing those events. We understand what happened. We better understand the purpose of those events, and, and we can interpret them better. I think this is what's happening with Israel at this point. I think they look back to the past of all the events that took place between David and Saul, and now they're beginning to make sense. And what they come to a conclusion was, is David was supposed to be the king the whole time. He was one of us. And not only was he one of us, the greatest, the greatest battles and the greatest victories in our history came through, not yes, during Saul's reign, but it was when David was leading his people in and out of battle. And then in the greatest moment of clarity of all, they're reminded that he is king, that David is king because 
God promised that he would be king. Look at the next verses. He says, and the Lord said to to you, they're, they're reminding him of the promise of God. He says, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David over king over Israel. Here's the key. David becomes king over all of Israel, not because he was a good guy, not because he was simply one of them, not because he was kin, and not simply because he knew how to lead an army. He became king and be certain about it because God said that he would be king. That's why. What we understand and must be gripped by is what God promises, it always, always, always comes true. His promises can never be deterred, They can never erode. They can never be trumped. They are always, always true. And it is at the very foundation of God's kingdom that he founds his kingdom upon these very promises. Now we see this truth really played out in really the example of verses 6 through 10 of what happens there, the event that takes place. There we see that David, once he's anointed as king, he and his men go into Jerusalem to be able to take it. Why? Well, a king needs a city to be able to reign from, and there would be no better city than the holy city of Jerusalem. So he gets his men, and the whole idea is they're going to go in, and they're going to take it for themselves. Only problem is, it's preoccupied, right? There's somebody in there. There's somebody in there already. It's theirs. They're called the Jebusites. Now, to really understand the significance of that, you have to go all the way back to the Old Testament, to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, God promised Abraham and his descendants that he would give them the promised land. That was the land going from from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates. All of it would be theirs. And as all of you know who have been here for some time, we've already studied the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. Remember, do this because you love me. All right, we went through those. We went through those books, and there we we saw them doing that very thing. He says, "Here's your land. Now go get it." Like, okay, what do we got to do? Well, you got to go and fight all the inhabitants of the land, all the Canaanites. And so we see in the beginning of Joshua, it's precisely what they did. They went in, they begin to fight each city, taking each city one at a time. Go back, read it. It's amazing stuff. And then what we find is that they didn't take all of the land that God had promised them. They had just taken some of it, and it causes all kinds of problems. But one of the lands that they tried to take was, was Jerusalem itself. And they had some, some success in doing so, we read in the book of Judges, but they were never able to truly lay hold of the city and keep it for themselves. These, these sorry Jebusites keep popping up, and so now they pop up again. Well, here's what we want to understand in the grand scheme of God's plan is God God had promised that they would have this land hundreds of years, note this, before the promise actually was fulfilled. Hundreds of years went by, but here's the idea. Even time would not ultimately impede God's promise from coming true. And not only time, time was no threat to God's promise, but, but neither was opposition. And that's what we see here in verse 6. Notice here, he says, these are the Jebusites speaking to David. They said, you will not come in here, but the, but, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. The Jebusites believe that their, their, their city and what they had built, there was no way, that too high of security, that there was no way they would ever be able to come in and take the city from them. And so what they do is, do you know what smack talk or trash talk is? That's what they're doing. 
They're like, hey, you know what we're going to, hey, you know what we're going to do, right? And he goes, what we're, I, I can't get the peas out of my mind. And anyway, you, it's a cartoon if you've ever watched it with your kids. And so, so, um, and, and so up on the wall, they're basically going, hey, there ain't no way you could take it. In fact, we're going to take our guards, uh, all the guards with one eye and one leg. I guess they were a bunch of pirates, I guess. And they're the ones that are going to guard the wall. And you'll never be able to get in here, even with our one-eyed, one-leg pirate security team. And so they're all up there guarding, and this is what I love. All of this opposition, look at verse 6. You, 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 you love this. Nevertheless, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, right? Here is all this buildup. Oh, yeah, trash talk. You'll never be able to get in here. Fortress is too strong. Nevertheless, he took it. I love that. I love that. Now, what's interesting here is he actually gives us a little detail, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it. It's not absolutely essential to the text, or, or, or at least to the point that I'm trying to make, but, but, but he even gives us some insight on how this happens. Look at verse 8. He says, And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. And, and, and he says, and are, who are hated by David's soul. So what David's doing is he's kind of talking trash back to them, right? And he goes, hey, uh, if we get there, then we're going to do it this way. And he announces the way they're going to do it is through this water shaft that he's speaking about. The way we're going to attack those blind guards and those lame guards is through the water shaft. Now, historically, uh, there was some kind of water shaft that went through from the city of Jerusalem to the outside of the city, which tapped into fresh water. It was a part of the city's defense. It would allow them to be uh, besieged by an enemy, but yet remain and still be able to live inside of the city. And it was hidden from, from those on the outside. Well, David and his men discover this thing, and they decide, hey, we're going to do one of two things, not sure which they did. They would either cut off the water supply so that they would starve out the people inside of the city, or some believe that they actually sent men down the, the water chute into the city, and then they ended up coming in, opening up the gates, and they had victory. Here's the key. It, that might be interesting, but it's not the point. The point is not how they did it. The point is that it was done. The point is that God's promises always come true and that time neither time nor opposition are a threat to God's promises being fulfilled however they are a threat to your and my faith they are a threat to your and my faith time and opposition are not threats to God's promises being fulfilled but they are threats to our faith that's true both for David and it's both true for us, and it's true for all of God's people of all time. One of the classic examples of this truth played out really in the Bible and outside of the Bible is the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is some 70 years old, wife about 60 years old, never been able to have a child. God comes to them, you're going to have a child and you're going to be a father of many nations. Now that's hard to swallow at 70 and 60 years old, well beyond childbearing years. Right, ladies? Right? And so amen to that and praise God for that, they say. And so, so well beyond. And so, but we know they believe the promise of God. They know they believe the promise of God. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us in the New Testament that he believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He had faith in what God had said. He believed. He acted on the promise of God by leaving his home and, and going to the land that God would lead him to. The problem is at 100 years old, he finally, three, 30 years later, they finally have this child. But what do you think happened over that 30 years? 
We'd read it like it happened yesterday. But what happens over the 30 years, their, their faith begins to deteriorate. They begin to struggle actually believing, will this ever come forth? And we have this classic picture of, of Abraham and his wife. They're out in the desert. What, what, what happens as they're out in the desert? They have uh, the angel of the Lord appears to them, comes to them, and they say, please stay with us. We want to feed you. And he says, hey, listen, and he's eating whatever it is, lamb, whatever it is. And he sits back and he says, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, this time next year, your wife will have uh, a child, the promised child that we told you. And then in the tent, Sarah is, over, is listening to this, and she starts <laughs> laughing. And, and the angel of the Lord says, hey, so why, why is she laughing? Abraham, oh, no, 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 she's not, she's not laughing. And the, the angel, in essence, says, well, she's not laughing, but, but she's laughing. She's definitely laughing. The question is, why is she laughing? Because this promise sounds so ridiculous now. With all this time that has gone on and the time that they had so much faith and believing what God was ultimately going to say, man, that time and that expanse of time begin to absolutely rip her faith apart. And it wasn't only a period of time that threatened us, our faith in believing that God will do what he's going to do, but it's also opposition. And they had plenty of opposition over those 30 years, did they not? Unfortunately, just like us, much of the opposition that they faced was self-caused. I mean, I mean, Sarah sits back and be, believes, well, you know what? It's been a little while since, you know, God's really come through on this promise. Let me help him. Let me help him go into my maidservant, uh, Hagar. And, 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 and then maybe that's the way that God was ultimately demonstrating that, that this would be fulfilled. And then that causes all kinds of problems, even to this day. Uh, and, and then we find again... Where, 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 where Abraham goes out and they go to Egypt. Do you remember this part of the story? They go into Egypt and Pharaoh's like, wow, Sarah, I, I, I want you as my wife. And Abraham's like, hey, no problem. She's my sister, so there's no problem there. And he takes her and he wants to take her as his wife. God supernaturally intervenes, ceases, keeps him from doing that. Why? Because he holds to his promise. And what ends up happening after 30 years of that promise, after all that opposition, what's the point of the story? They have a child. They have a child just as God had promised that they would have a child. When you and I are facing difficulties, trials, hardships, we can often, we, we, we find incredible, God's people find incredible comfort in the promises of God. You know how I know that you're having difficulties, many of God's people? Because they start to read the Bible. You're reading the Bible? No. Things must be good. Yeah, things are great. How are things going? Oh man, they're terrible. That's why I'm in the Bible. What are you looking for? Unfortunately, we're, 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 well, we're looking for the promises of God. I need something to cling to. I need something to let me know that all of this is going to be okay. I, I need something that I can hang my hat on. What is it? And so we cling to that. And then we'll, we, we might read it. We might, somebody might preach it like we're doing today. There might be a friend who texts it to you, right? It might be a quilt that somebody makes and you hang up on the wall, right? might be whatever it is, and we cling to these things. The problem is, over time, in the midst of opposition, it begins to threaten that faith, and all of a sudden, that promise, which used to drive us, energize us, move us, and give us hope, now begins to kind of fall apart. And so what do we do? It's why God gives us stories just like this. It's the point of the story, Stories like this, when we study this and see and reminded of God's faithfulness despite the amount of time and the opposition that face us and begin to cause us to not believe in the promise of God, it blows the dust off and it refreshes us in His promises again, affirming that what God says is going to be true. 
So when we sit back and we begin to think to ourselves that we're being faithful, and we know that God blesses those who are faithful, but when we look around, it seems like all the blessings are going towards those who hate God and curse Him. What do we do? Galatians 6, 9, promise, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. We will reap. Sometimes that in our, our, our obedience, all we find really because of our obedience is actually suffering. That's the consequence of it. That's the outcome of it. Not more prosperity. And then we remind ourselves the promise of Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Sometimes we struggle against sin. Should I say sometimes we struggle against sin? Sometimes we come to the point to where we feel overwhelmed by sin. The fight is so long. The fight is so difficult. We ask, when, Lord, will we finally get victory over the sin in which it is haunting us and is fighting us? And we're reminded of the words in Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to its completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This text, this truth in this text helps you and I to brush off the dust of the promises of God that we once held so dear, found so much hope in, and revitalizes them again. That's the point of a text like this. We need to understand that God's promises, God's promises are always true. They will always come true, and time and opposition will never threaten them. Amen? Will never threaten them. Number two, God's kingdom is founded on service. Not only is God's kingdom founded, as we've said already, not only is God's kingdom founded, excuse me, on promises, specifically His promises, but it is also founded on service. Now, I want to remind you of what I said in the very beginning of the service, that this, the events that take place in chapter 5 are not necessarily in chronological order. Instead, they are different events, right, that have been brought together at different times, brought together for you and I to understand the foundation by which God builds His, what, kingdom, okay? And so we see that, and here we see an event that happens not immediately after what we just read, but actually happens almost at the very end of King David's reign, now, notice in verse 11, it says, And Haram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. Now, now, understand what's going on here. The king of Tyre, close proximity to Israel. What do you want to do to your neighbor? You want to be a good neighbor. You and I bring over an apple pie, right? What, is, what does this guy do? He builds David a house. I, I like that kind of neighbor, right? And, and, he, and he includes everything. He, he, he gives them the cedars, all the materials that are needed, all the masons, all, all the carpenters that are necessary. So you just sit back, just going to build you a house, and you and I would be overwhelmed by that kind of generosity. But understand, this is no measly house, no house like mine or yours. This is a palace, a royal palace that he ends up building here. And, and so he, he builds this palace. Now, here's what's interesting is David theologically interprets this gift. In other words, of what he's been given, both his position and his possessions, he interprets something theologically. God is telling me something here. And this is the next section. Look at what he says. And David knew 
He knew by the position that he was given. He, he, he knew by, by the, 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 what, what God had given him. He knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. Very simple principle here. I don't want to make too much of it but, because I want to get to the next one. But here's the simple principle. Whatever God is faithful, faithful to provide everything you and I need to whatever it is that he calls us to. So whatever God calls you to, he will always equip and provide whatever it is you need to fulfill what it is that he's calling you to do. Does that make, you're like, that's confusing. Let me say it this way. We, we talk about mission trips here, right? And we're doing these short-time mission trips, and somebody will inevitably come up, and I get it, I understand it. These trips are expensive, and somebody comes up and goes, man, I feel like God is calling me to go on this trip, but I don't have any money. So I say to them, go, well, here's what you need to do. You need to pray, you need to work, you need to save, you need to sell whatever the junk is that you got inside your house, you need to send out some letters for some help, and then you need to rely on God for the thing. Okay, but what if I do all that, and I get to the very end, and I still don't have any money? Well, for me, it might be that God may not want you to go on this particular trip. How can God not want me to go? I know that God wants me to go, and I just tell them, you know that God wants you to go if he is going to provide for you. He's always faithful to provide. Does that make sense? Faithful to provide for whatever he calls us to. And so, so, so that's the key. But there's a bigger lesson that he learns here. And look at this. Not only did he know that the Lord had established him king over Israel, but notice this, he also knew that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. In other words, he comes to the realization that the position that he's been given and all of these wonderful benefits that he get because of his promotion, that he's just now too king, was not for him just to be able to hoard to himself, keep to himself, enjoy to himself, and for it to just be a blessing. For him to sit back and go, it's great to be king. It's awesome to be king. Look at my house. I enjoy it. And then even try to spiritualize it by going around and going, I love all the good things I have. Thank you, God, for all the good things that I have. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's wrong for us to thank God for all the blessings, for the position that we have. What I'm saying is that's not the response of true thanksgiving. The real response of true thanksgiving is for us to use it for the kingdom of God. And that's what he does. He says, this isn't just for me. This is for me to be able to use. The position that I have and the possessions in which I've been granted is for me to be able to use for the advancement of God's kingdom, not merely for the advancement of David. The kingdom of God was not founded, uh, 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 and notice this, is not, was not founded on the foundation of its members seeking to serve themselves, but rather its members leveraging all they have in service to others. How easily it is to forget that. Would you agree? I forgot this many years ago. I was in elementary school. Uh, something you don't know about your pastor, I don't think. I don't know when you've been somewhere almost 14 years. I don't know what I've told you and what I haven't, right? And so uh, I got to come up with new illustrations. I'm constantly now going to Ryan and, and Chris going, dude, I don't, have, I don't have any more illustrations on grace. Do you have any on grace? I've already told 167,000 illustrations on grace. And so, so, so I was in elementary school, and you don't know this, but uh, again, I was made Valentine King in our elementary school. <laughs> Me. Yep. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if I was voted. I don't, know, I don't know if I was made the king. I don't know if I was elected king. I don't know if I lost a bet. Whatever it was, I became the Valentine King in our elementary school. And with it became certain benefits. I got a crown. I got a royal robe that I got to wear. All the students in the class were very busy as they were dressing me up, very busy making this nice little sign for me, coloring, writing, happy Valentine's Day and signing their name. Not only that, but they gave me a queen. 
They gave me a, a, a Valentine queen, dressed her up. But if my wife's not here, but if you talk with her, there's no threat to her. This was, was, was not a threat. I, no real relationship here, all right? Just make-believe. Don't want her to feel insecure. And so... Um, of what happened in third grade. And so, so she's with me. She gets all dressed up, and they give her this big like, kind of basket boxes, all, all of candy, and they just present it to us, and they go, now we want you to go to the principal. And so we begin to walk to, she and I, and in a very royal way, working our way up to the office. I remember this like it was yesterday. It was 140 years ago. And so we're walking and people are trying to come and I'm like, don't touch the feet, don't touch the feet. I'm the king. And so we work our way into the office and as we get into the office, they go, hey, the, hey there's somebody here to see you, uh, principal. And the principal comes out and they go, you guys look amazing. Stay, stay right there goes and gets his, his camera, remember the Polaroid, right? The big giant Polaroid, and comes out, oh, I'm going to put that up on my wall. You guys look amazing. Oh, look at that picture that you have. That's an awesome, what a beautiful picture. Look at all that candy. You must really be loved. And we're sitting back going, yes, yes, it's nice to be royalty. It's, it's wonderful. And, and so, so he, he goes, okay, well, listen, thank you guys for stopping by and let me see you and all the stuff that you have, and goes back into his office. Well, we work our way back, me with my sign, with my big picture, her with her big chocolate basket and candy basket. We get all the way back, walk into the front, front um, uh, of the classroom. In the classroom, Miss, Mrs. Bauer, remember her, uh, she says to her, she goes, what did you do? Well, what do you mean that we did? Well, why did you bring the picture and the candy back? That was for the principal. And then she said, why do you think we gave you all of this and allowed you to be the Valentine King? Even at that time, I was too wise in my sin to know to answer that question. <laughs> and me, I knew that I thought this was all for me. This was for everybody to let me know how much they loved me and how wonderful I was and, and to give me a sign and hopefully to get some of that candy from my wife and, um, and, and for all these things to be able to happen. How easy it is for you and I to do the same thing I used to do in elementary school, still doing today, thinking that everything that God has given me, my position and my possessions, is still all about making much to do about me. And the Bible says that it's not. It's not how his kingdom works. The kingdom of God is based more on serving than ultimately seeking to be served. We're reminded that there's a huge difference between our old sinful nature and the new nature in which God gives us. Our old self wants the praise of others. We want to climb the ladder of success so that others will serve us. We want to take all the blessings and enjoy them for ourselves. Um, uh, and we want to take credit of it in the process. But this new nature sees the blessings of God. When we become citizens of the kingdom, God, we, we begin to see that God gives us the position to use for the purpose of serving others. He gives us more money than what we need to be able to give to those who don't have enough. He, he gives us the praise of others to learn to redirect all of that praise to bring attention to the praise of God. This is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. How do we know? Because the one who established and built this kingdom lived the same way. For the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom. Men, women, children, are we serving? This isn't some ploy to try to get you to pass out bulletins. I'm just saying, do you see your whole life and every blessing you sit there and go, oh man, I just love my wife. I, 
she, she's there for you to enjoy that relationship that's a part of God, but she's also there for you to serve. That family and those children, for you to be able to sit back, they're there for you to be able to enjoy and frustrate you, whatever, same thing, right? And do all those kind of things. But why do they give it? For you to serve them. They give you a church. To, for, for what? To be able for you to grow in Jesus Christ, to hear the word of God. For what purpose? For your mere enjoyment? No, for you continually to, at the same time, sit there and go, you've given all this. I've got to use what God gives me to be able to serve other people. This is the heart of God. God's kingdom is founded not only on his promises, but it is founded on his service. Listen, it's 10 o'clock. You've got to listen much quicker. I'm on the third point. Fortunately, it's much shorter. Just bear with me just for a moment. Now, before we leave, look, here's what I'm afraid of at this point. I'm afraid because we naturally gravitate to David, David worship. Oh, I just, I just love David. I, I want to be more like David, right? And I, I want to make sure that we fight against that as we're going through this particular text. And, and we leave with our minds fixed on David while, while, while talking about what a great man he was, how faithful to God he was, and, 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 and how we need to be more like David, as though David were the focus of the story. If that's what we walk away with, we've missed the point of the story. Uh, we have to do something with verse 13. We have to do something with it. We can't just leave it hang. Verse 13 says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came to Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. We have to do something with the wives and concubines. Here's a couple things we could do. Number one, we just ignore it and just hope that it all goes away. So they go, yeah, well, that's just a difficult thing to be able to explain. He was a good guy. Or we could get up and go, hey, be like David, except for in the area of wives and concubines, right? That could be the moralistic story. Or we could sit back, and what we could do with this is we can just justify David's sin. Sit there and go, well, there was a reason that he ended up breaking God's law. The reason, he, good reason, he, he did it because by marrying into all of these tribes, he was actually unifying Israel under one house. And not only that, but he would also have to give money to all of these families. So he was spreading out the wealth as well. And we could all sit back and we could all sit there and go, oh, well, that seems very logical and very wonderful. But if we know the word of God, we know that we would be justifying his sinful actions. Because the Bible was very clear in Deuteronomy 17, 17, when God gives a whole list of laws for the king of Israel to follow, he said, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And if you don't know the story of David, he ends up turning away from God at different periods of time. And the consequences of his sin are quite severe that he experiences through his life because he had taken, he had done this very thing. But even with this sin, here's what we have to understand, but even with this sin, here's what blows our mind. He's still the king of Israel. He was still continuing blessed of God despite the sin and the kingdom of God continues to advance and grow even, even with its most prestigious citizen being a sinner. Why? Because God's kingdom would not be, cannot be based and is not based on the righteousness of its citizens, but on the grace of their God. Verse 10 sums it up perfectly. And David became greater and greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. The reason that God was with him was not because he was a good guy. Not because he was fully and completely a righteous man of God, perfect in every way. 
It is God who gives us what we, it is because of God's graciousness that he remains king. It is because of God's goodness and grace towards us that he continues to fulfill the promises of God. Not because you and I are perfect, because he's perfect. And he gives sinful people what it is that they do not deserve. We're not to walk away this morning from this story with our minds swirling about the righteousness of David, but our minds should be consumed by the grace of God. He would receive unto himself sinners saved by grace. That he would send another king, King, king Jesus, who would succeed where David failed, where you and I failed to be tempted in every way, and yet he would sin not. And that perfect king, by act of his grace, would die on behalf of sinners just like David and just like you and me and exchange our sins for his righteousness. That's grace. And that is the kingdom of God. And that is how it is built. We should leave this morning encouraged. Now, I, this came at the perfect time. I, I told Ryan this week, I just told him, I said, hey man, I don't know if I could take many more of these Second Samuel messages. It's about death and destruction and sin and all these different types of things. And we're trying to make it sound better and we got people's hands. People's hands are getting cut off. I'm tired of this. We've got to have something different. What do we do? And in the midst of that, we know there's the hope of the gospel. But we should be encouraged today when we leave. Why? We should be encouraged that the kingdom of God is founded on promises. I'll give you one. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We should be encouraged and leave this morning encouraged that the kingdom of God was founding on service. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And we can leave this morning being encouraged because the kingdom of God is founded upon his grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We should not leave this morning with say, saying what a mighty, great man David was, but rather saying what a mighty God we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we love you.